One of the nice things about pigs and genetics is that they they can have a, a they can start having offspring at about uh, uh, seven months of age on, on average, and so that's a quick generation interval. And they have lots of pigs, so we can select only the best ones to be parents for the next generation. It's time for a new era of communication in the swine industry, one that you can get the latest updates while commuting or driving to farms. Here, you will have the brightest minds of the global swine industry in your pocket. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. AccuFast, the best way to predict the future is to create it. Start creating your future today at AccuFastSwine.com. FeedFlow, feed is too expensive to ignore. Take control with FeedFlow. sale provides programs and services to help producers achieve their targets in high-quality, safe, and sustainable way. AB Vista, new nutritional perspectives and novel enzyme applications to drive pig production. Hello, welcome to today's edition, latest edition of Swine It Podcast. I'm Jared Thomas, your host, and today we have a very distinguished guest, Dr. Max, Max Rothschild. Um, Dr. Rothschild is an, was a retired animal scientist at Iowa State, and he's a premier geneticist. He's lifted Iowa State to international status. So, very good to have you today, Dr. Rothschild, on the podcast. Well, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks very much for the invitation. I'd be happy to just say a few things about my background. So I'm uh, trained as a quantitative animal geneticist. Uh, I came to Iowa State in 1980 uh, to work primarily with pigs. And since 1980, I've worked both in quantitative genetics and molecular genetics. And over the last uh, 40 plus years, uh, myself and my colleagues and my students have been working on primarily problems that address uh, pig genetics and industry problems that we think we can help with. And so We've worked with problems related to structural soundness in feet and legs. We've looked at disease resistance issues. We've identified genes that control traits of interest like growth rate, feed efficiency, and, and uh, uh, litter size. And uh, in more recent years, I've done a lot more international work, uh, both in Asia, Africa, and Latin America. And uh, now I recently retired, and I, I actually am a a genetic consultant uh, for uh, uh, pig companies and other types of genetics companies. Want to improve feed biosecurity? VVC Premix from DSM Ferminiche can reduce pathogen concentration of feed with proven results against ASF, PED, PRRS, and SVA. VVC Premix can also help improve gut functionality, weight gain, and feed efficiency. Learn more at dsm.com forward slash VVC Premix. Very good. You you had a wide, uh, a, a long career across many experiences. Uh, you know, putting on my produ- uh, producer's hat, I think about, uh, we talk about geneticists all the time, maybe not in a, a good light, but uh, we always think, well, what if, you know, if they would just ask us, we we tell them exactly what we want. You know, we want a, a sow that has a high-born live, you know, their progeny, uh, very feed, uh, very feed efficient. Uh, low mortality, uh, low pre-weaning mortality. But it's, it's really not that simple, is it, uh, when you do it? No, it, you know, it, 
it's a matter of patience as much as anything. You know, one of the nice things about pigs and genetics is that they they can have a, a they can start having offspring in about uh, uh, seven months of age on, on average, and so that's a quick generation interval. And they have lots of pigs, so we can select only the best ones to be parents for the next generation. But the truth of the matter is, the more traits you select for, the slower process you're making any one of them. And so one of the things that's really uh, been a, a boom for uh, pig breeders is that crossbreeding works so well. So what we like to do, of course, is select for certain traits in the male lines and certain traits in the female lines, cross them up, and then produce the kind of pigs you want. But we try to listen to producers, and certainly uh, we get some things right, and over time we've gotten some things wrong. Right. You know, you've uh, you've transcended a lot of years, and uh, when you first started out, what, what attracted you to pigs? Uh, well, uh, I had worked with pigs uh, in my uh, undergraduate days at the University of California, Davis. I, uh, I worked on a little 30-sow, uh, 30-duroc, uh, 30-duroc sow farm that the university had, and I just enjoyed the smart animals. Uh, like I said, they have large litters, so they're great for geneticists. I did some work with cattle. You know, you turn one generation a year, and they only produce one offspring. It's not very, not very easy to get a genetics experiment moving with that kind of kind of data. For sure, yeah. It uh, it does pigs do lend a lot of um, uh, ability to make changes. You know, thinking over the years, um, what do you uh, what have you seen? Uh, what do you think's been the biggest? Uh, thing you've seen that uh, geneticists have been able to do uh, with pigs? Well, you know, I think the obvious thing is that we've made them grow faster and they, they grow probably twice as fast. You know, it used to be you wouldn't get a market pig till 10 or 11 months. Uh, we now get a pig at six months and it's it's uh, almost 100 pounds heavier. When I started the market weight, uh, market weights were about 200 pounds, 210 now people are selling pigs at 275, 285 in some cases. Um, they were selling pigs at an inch and a quarter back fat. Geez, you can get them down to six tenths, no problem, at 260 pounds. So um, th- those are the two obvious things. Litter sizes were eight. Now they're 12. Uh, feed efficiency, I don't really have the numbers in front of me, but there's certainly big improvements. And, and this has come with trying to, uh, with big changes in the environments we raise pigs. If you remember before 1980, certainly in Iowa, lots of pigs were out on, on, on the dirt, usual uh, kind of housing and the fields. Now they're all in buildings uh, on concrete. Uh, they're crowded. So it's, it's more stressful, more, more difficult. So we've made a lot of really positive changes under a changing uh Pretty large changing environments. Yeah, very sure. You know, I can remember uh, market weight was about two forty, uh, and uh, and that hadn't been too many too many years ago. And uh, in about the same time period, we've been able to get you know now, like as you say, two eighty, two ninety, and uh, and what's amazing is the feed efficiency has been able, they've been able to maintain very good feed efficiency even at those higher weights. So, Absolutely. Absolutely. And some of that is just a typical selection for pigs that are more efficient. Others using individual genes. One of the genes that we found uh, in our laboratory uh, uh, and which all the breeding companies now use, MC4R, uh, leads to uh, uh, the single gene itself, five to 
uh, 8% improvement in feed efficiency. So there are a lot of things we've done to make things and make pigs better. Now, uh, speak a little bit as you, as you talk about, uh, you, you've been able to map a lot of the pig genome. Uh, that That's right. Well, we started, uh, you know, the, when I when I was a gra- uh, undergraduate student, I took a course in DNA, and we thought that was pretty revolutionary. We take that, we take that all for granted now. The the human genome was mapped in about two thousand one. The initial maps, the pig maps, uh, we started getting uh, some reasonable maps uh, in the late nineteen nineties, and and now we we have a large number of the, the pig genome has been completely sequenced. We know we have between twenty-five and thirty thousand genes. We know their approximate order. We're we're starting to understand what those genes do. Um, most breeding companies are selecting uh, uh, using what's called genomic selection. So they're they're genotyping pigs for sometimes as many as a hundred thousand genes, and then using that in a formula, a complex formula, to predict uh, which animals will be better and and should serve as parents. And the other thing we do more than we used to do, uh, when I started, uh, the seed stock, individual seed stock producer, uh, sold almost all the breeding stock. Now the breeding companies sell almost all the breeding stock. And while that has some negative effects on individual producers, it's allowed us to uh, uh, have more careful selection at the top uh, in a kind of a pyramid structure in nucleus herds. Now, as, as you as you as you say, you made these uh, improvements in a lot of these traits, phenotypes. What, as uh, we always think, sometimes or maybe uh, uh, have opinion that when you when you make a change, sometimes you give up something. Uh, what, do, what do you think? Maybe we've given up a little bit uh, to get where we're at. Well, a great example of that, and we proved this from a selection experiment, is. When, when uh, producers and breeders started selecting for leaner pigs, two things happened. They were raising them on concrete, and they noticed they had a lot more leg problems. And what we found is that, for whatever reason, some of the genes that are associated with leg structure are also linked to genes associated with leanness. So when we've selected for leanness, we've tended to make pigs a little less sound structurally. So that's required. Uh, that's required that producers uh, uh, and breeders pay careful attention to leg structure and select for leanness and structure concurrently. We also know that leaner pigs probably don't reproduce as well. So one of the things we've had to do is, again, select concurrently for litter size and for and for leanness. And that's one of the reasons why uh, there's more selection pressure for leanness on the sire lines and less on the dam lines because we need to keep that selection pressure for, for litter size and survivability. And of course, the more pigs a sow produces, there's a slight increase in the chance that those pigs are, will be less uh, strong and, and will not survive. So we've got we to start selecting more for sustainability and, and uh, 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 we, uh, number of pigs at weaning, for instance. Yeah, you know, and personally, we've seen this uh, as a uh, producer, you know, with these large prolific litters, that farrowing duration now has gotten so much longer. And uh, so we have a lot of pigs that uh, if you're that last pig, that number 20, you know, uh, you're starving for oxygen and, and not as thrifty and, and, and tough to get maybe the amount of life given colostrum that you got to have. So. Uh, Absolutely. And, you know, 
uh, what, I, what I kind of jokingly call trailer pigs because they come out at the end there. Um, we, we, we've seen that. And what we notice, uh, and this is something that we notice from Chinese pigs, oftentimes in Chinese pig litters, you'd have a pig born maybe 20, 24 hours after the initiation of labor. So, uh, but, but what made those pigs more survivable is that they were more equal in size. So one of the issues that we, we keep wondering about is, could we select uh, pigs so at birth, they're almost all equal, of equal size? That's very difficult because the sow doesn't ovulate all at the same time. She doesn't ovulate 20 or 30 eggs all at once. She ovulates them over a period of time, and they get impregnated. Uh, the, the, they get fertilized over uh, a certain period of time. So that's an area that we certainly uh, need to work with reproductive biologists on. Yeah. And, you know, it, uh, what do you think maybe some of the management changes that uh, as you make some of these genetic changes, uh, as often across all industry now, everybody's uh, it's tough with labor, trying to find people in general and not, not to mention good people that want to be with pigs and are good working with pigs. So I, what do you think are some of the management uh, changes we, we're going to have to make? Well, you know, one of the things that I saw is one of the genes that we discovered, uh, again, MC4R is associated with feed efficiency, and if it has two alleles, a growth allele and a, 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 an efficient allele. And some of the breeding companies actually selected for the growth allele because feed costs were relatively low. And what we found was that pig's got to eat and eat and eat. It's got enormous appetite. So, if, if the feeders aren't full, you know, people aren't coming in and feeding the, and filling the feeders, and then we've got all kinds of issues. So one of the things that's starting to happen now in the industry is the combination of artificial intelligence, or AI, and the use of cameras and sensors to predict animal health. Uh, are they feeding? Is the feeder full of feed? So I think all of this is going to produce some, some fascinating new traits in terms of uh, animal behavior, uh, what pigs do, what pigs don't do, how they feed. And, and of course, uh, if the cameras are set right, uh, it'll also predict when females are in heat, if they're off feed. So all these things, I think, will be uh, uh, once we get them in the buildings and figure out the best technology. And there's a lot of technologies out there that are just now beginning to, to uh, be sold and be really useful, and those will help us. Yeah, I, I agree 100%. I think technology, uh, we're seeing that the explosion of now we're able to see things and mark and keep data, collect data on things that we, we've never able to before. I, I mean, could you imagine uh, some of the technologies over your lifetime that you've seen? The advantages? You know, it's amazing. I was talking to uh, friends about this. Uh, if I, if And you probably know this just as well. If I put a rotary dial phone down next to somebody, they'd start punching the numbers instead of trying to figure out how to use the rotary. And, uh, you know, uh, the thought that we'd have a, a, a the, the computer that's in my phone today is, is probably 10 times as uh, faster than the computer I use for my Ph.D. Uh, thesis. So uh, or maybe a thousand times faster. So it's just amazing what we have now. And, and there'll be more changes, some good uh, and some probably not so good. You know, it, it all depends on how artificial intelligence is used. It's already been used, unfortunately, in probably some wrong ways 
in our politics and some other areas, but in health and and uh, animal management, it might be outstanding. Yeah, yeah. You know, just just thinking a little bit, uh, Max. What do you think are some of the um, uh, advancements that we're going to see in the future, uh, and how that's going to uh, assist uh, genetics geneticists as they improve, uh, maybe quicker uh, some of these traits or identify some of these traits? Well, some of the improvements. One of the things we're going to understand a lot better is irises. You know, uh, certainly the COVID outbreak scared all of us. It, it killed so, uh, lots of people. It, it, it's related to some things. But, you know, uh, we, we have diseases in swine that are, that are devastating as well. And once people start to figure out the diseases a little better, one of the advancements we're going to see is what I call vaccine-ready pigs. And by vaccine-ready pigs, I mean that we're going to have pigs that have genetically been selected so when vaccinated, they mount a, big, a bigger immune response and more protective. That's one area. Another area I'm sure we're going to see is technology that's going to inform us about animal behavior a little better. So we can make uh, pens. We can make environments that pigs live in to be more favorable. <clears throat> and, and maybe even help us to select more docile pigs so we'll have less tail biting, less, less fighting with mix, those kinds of things. You know, you mentioned a lot of different uh, traits, behavior being one of them. How do how do you how does a uh, breeding company decide? You know, what traits are, are people going to uh, are going to be the most economical? What, what what are people looking for? How do they decide? You know, how do you you get those traits that that people want? Well, you know, uh, I've worked now with uh, nearly all the major breeding companies that are left, and some that didn't make it, I guess. And uh, uh, the first, the bottom line in all these types of things the, uh, has been that they, they, they ask the producers what makes money for them. And so they try to select not only uh, on traits that make money. So growth rate, feed efficiency were initial, litter size were initial. When some of the uh, companies have, have, or some of the breeds have started to be more interested in meat quality, they've selected to improve meat quality. Uh, disease is an issue that <clears throat> it's a little hard to quantify the cost, but uh, but clearly disease has been costly, and some companies are, are working now to produce. Uh, one company in particular is working to produce uh, a PERS uh, free pig uh, using what's uh, called gene, gene editing. If that technique is approved by the by the uh, U.S. government for food for food animals. Then that 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 will help produce a pig that that'll be purse resistant. So there's there's traits out there that we can work on, but we've got to look, look at a little more biology. Right. Uh, and, and as we look, uh, as you mentioned, the purse and gene editing. Uh, obviously, consumer and, and, and meat quality. Uh, we got we got to make a product that's palatable that people want to consume. And do uh, you think there's been maybe an overshoot a little bit on the leanest side and, and maybe maybe we're starting to see more attention to meat quality and, and a more power? Well, we, we certainly are. And, and uh, my lab uh, is responsible for finding, uh, thanks to some help of some uh, really good uh, uh, colleagues of mine, D uh, Dan Chubano, who's now at the University of Nebraska, for example. He and I have found two genes, CAST and PRKA Gamma 3, and those genes are associated with really good meat quality. The interesting thing is that the 
favorable alleles are in very high frequency in Durox and Berkshires, which we already knew had good meat quality. And sadly, the favorable alleles are in very low quality in Landrace and Yorkshire, which of course we knew had bad. So one of the, the challenges is can we select in those breeds that have low levels of the unfavorable allele and improve the allelic frequency? Can we make the right crosses? And then, and this is true, is the, some of the breeding companies say, well, the producers aren't willing to pay for that. So the problem is, is we need to have a, an agreement between what the producers are willing to pay for and what the breeding companies are willing to select for. And I think we're getting closer on several traits. Certainly disease resistance, meat quality, survivability of piglets. Those are all traits that uh, cross the bottom line, but we're never quite sure how to quantify them. Yeah, yeah very true. Uh, you know, customers, I think you get to the point where, um, as you, you give an example, breeders, uh, producers, but even down to the customer level, you know, we we want to we want to give the customer something that it wants, but we want also we have to it has to be you know economical. We have to get paid for it if we're going to do something that is maybe not quite as uh, makes us less efficient or uh, it's less economical. You know, we got to get that payment somewhere. You know, Absolutely, and and you're you know uh, people at your level are selling mostly commodity pork. So we're talking more in the cents instead of the dollars. People that sell pork at uh, high-end pork uh, for uh, the the white linen uh, uh, restaurant trade, they can afford to pay for meat quality. So we we have to figure out this mix of how how we operate. And and some producers have gone into niche marketing. Some of it I agree with. Some I think is kind of crazy, but uh, so be it. You know, we've we've got some breeds out there that people are selling uh, at enormous prices, but the pigs are so inefficient, they have to sell at those large prices. Right. You know, going back to, uh, I was just thinking that we were talking, um, as we've seen a huge increase in the, the litter size across probably most, most breeds. But, uh, what we, what we, uh, what didn't maybe trend upward is the, the amount of pigs we're weaning. It's to your point, mortality, you know, uh, has gotten higher. Uh, and, uh, and and the intakes, you know, as, as animals are leaner, they eat less by nature. But uh, we have sows that, that are, are having more pigs, but they aren't able to, to increase their intakes some, somewhat. So that's been a struggle. And, and uh, what do you think going forward? Um, you know, do you see uh, more more uh, disease and more attention to, to mortality? Uh, yeah, I. I think I think that's already starting to happen. One of the breeding companies has already made uh, uh, a lot a number alive at five days to be one of their goals. So I I think there's certainly more uh, more interest in the breeding companies in trying to increase uh, survivability along with uh, litter size. There, there's one philosophy, and that is the more pigs they produce, the more they'll have to weed. There's another philosophy that says. Uh, we should be selecting just on number alive at, say, five or ten days, and that'll improve everything uh, concurrently. So it's a little hard to know. Uh, certainly, uh, I think we, we can improve litter size, continue to improve litter size. We can continue to improve survivability. Uh, by producing longer sows, we'll get a, a, a longer underline and, and have more teats. That's good. 
but there's a management side to this. You know, better managers know how to cross foster. So the pig that throws 20 piglets, uh, her piglets are in trouble unless somebody knows what they're doing and cross fosters some of the extras. So it's it's a mix. Yeah, it's going to take more management. Uh, you know, your point, uh, a lot of facilities were built 20, 25 years ago. And as you say, now the sow's longer. Now our crates are even, you know, uh, are too short. And so we have more instances of, of pigs being mashed, uh, just no room. So I think a lot of it's going to have to take a step back and, and look at the way our buildings are designed, and, and maybe we need to make adjustments there. Uh, a- a- absolutely. And, and now with the push because of uh, changes in certain states about uh, what type of pigs they're, they're, what type of pork they're willing to uh, 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 buy, you know, group housing is going to change things. And traits in group housing, are different than traits and crates. So we, we need to look at all that. Um, I would say if I was uh, 20 years younger and still working uh, every day, uh, this would really produce some fascinating new opportunities. And certainly some of my students who are still in the industry of, as animal breeders, uh, they, they've got some real big opportunities out there to kind of fine-tune some, some of the stuff that we started. Yeah, you know, it's, it's uh, funny that... Uh it's almost like we're making a circle a little bit. Maybe, you know, we had animals that were more uh, docile, and, and which is going to be important as we move into these group housing situations where now we're mixing animals. and But uh, we're taking a step back maybe from being, uh, from animals, from some of those traits that we were maybe pressing uh, years ago. So it's, it's, this kind of seems like maybe we're going back in a circle a little bit and going back to... Uh, Regressing a little bit on, on more on, on on and seeing more attention to, to animal behavior and animal welfare. You know, we're certainly going to have to do more of that. When we when we had individual pigs out on the on lots, dirt lots, uh, we 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 had different kinds of environments and selection goals. Now, as we go back to group housing, that's going to present some 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 things, and certainly. Uh, Pigs that have higher appetites tend to be a little more aggressive, so that's problematic. Uh, so we, we're going to have to look at all of this. And, and uh, you know, one of the things that I always found fascinating working with pigs is that they're intelligent animals. They respond, uh, they're very plastic, so to speak, from a genetic standpoint. They respond differently to environments. And as a research scientist, uh, that was fascinating. It's also fascinating as a consultant because – when I go to a farm like yours or someone else's, I see all kinds of different things that make me think. Well, did, did the, the producer think about this? Did they? Are they maybe they missed this point. And that's the, uh, one of the things why I, I still enjoy consulting is to to get out and see things and try and, and look with with a new set of eyes. Yeah. Uh, did you ever think uh, in your lifetime you would you would see the advancements that's been made uh, uh, genetically? You know, I, I thought a lot was possible. Uh, I, I, I'm not sure I could quantify it against what's happened now. Uh, but but we have so much more to do. We, we're not only feeding ourselves in, in, in the U.S., but we, we, we export a lot of pork. But we ought to be looking at some of these techniques and, and thinking how they can be used in other livestock species in places with much harsher environments. I've worked in Africa. I worked in Asia and Latin America. 
they've got lots of challenges that are more than genetic. Uh, they require people to know how to feed pigs, water pigs, things that we granted. Yeah, you know, it's. Uh, I think we forget sometimes that our biggest mission is we're, we're, we've got to feed the world, and that responsibility it lies with us as, as producers. And uh, and that that is a challenge that uh, is getting harder and harder. Uh, as you said, in, in some of these areas where it's just really hard to exist and hard to uh, have the resources available. So, and that brings, you know, is looking at a lot, uh, you know, you're, you've done a great job over the years with uh, genetics, but uh, you're, you're quite a humanitarian as well. Maybe talk a little bit about some of your endeavors that you've uh, done in, in Africa. Well, uh I've been very interested. You know, one of the reasons uh, I got into animal science as a as a young uh, kid, a college kid, was in, in the early 70s, we were worried about population explosion, all airlinks, we're all going to die because there's going to be too many people, we won't be able to feed them. And so I got into animal science to help feed people. And somewhere along the line, I, I would say I lost my way, but I was working mostly on, on helping producers in the U.S., which where we have were relatively food abundant. So about 20, 25 years ago, I started working in Africa, working with small producers uh, as part of the Iowa State University project in Uganda. And it's been very rewarding. I, I've been happy to help lots of producers with cattle, pigs, chickens, pit, uh, and goats. And that helps produce, uh, produce food and economic security for these people. And one of the big things we need to remember is Food secure people aren't likely to be interested in war or conflict. Uh, they can manage disease better, and that helps all of us. Not not just the people in those countries; it helps all of us. Yeah, you know, it, it's a very good point. Uh, as we know, in animals, uh, when, when we have resources, there's when there's short resources, uh, short anything. You know, people are anxious. People are, uh, it, it affects behavior. Uh, yeah, and we need to. Uh, I think you know that's a. Uh, a fa- I, I spent a year working at USAID on when I was on sabbatical uh, in in a variety of countries in Africa and and the Middle East. And you know, food secure people are happier and healthier, and politically, that's good for this country. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, so that had to be an awesome experience as you go and, and maybe you list some examples of where, I mean, when you start working with these people and what you're able to do. Well, you know, uh, I, I'm always amazed. I, I in, in Uganda and, and South Africa, uh, Kenya and Tanzania, where I've been, a lot of these people are raising animals, but they don't understand any biology. And, uh, you know, I, I, I just getting them to, to water provide water full time. Now, in many cases, people have to walk miles to get water from a pump so or from a stream or a lake. So that's very hard to, to completely water. So helping them get water, teaching them about feed, teaching them about simple biology like, that. why are you feeding that boar? He doesn't need to be 500 pounds. He needs to be 250, and the sow needs to get the food. Uh, and some of that breaks with tradition. In many of these countries, the the man in the household eats first, and they think the the boar needs to eat first. And it doesn't work that way. Yeah. So we yeah. we've had some great opportunities to to teach people, and frankly, learn ourselves about the rest of the world. Yeah, 
Yeah, it, it, it all gets down to education. And uh, I think sometimes, um, you know, we just uh, we just need to learn more uh, more about uh, the science behind what we do. And, and obviously, there's, you know, I think about uh, protein is a very important source of, you know, nutrition that, is, that is, is very hard to come by in, in many areas. Absolutely. And, you know, uh, you know, the other thing about animals is if you look historically in the United States in the 1850s and 1860s, animals were kind of like banks. People could sell them and get money when they really were cash strapped. The same thing is true in developing countries. A poor woman farmer who, whose husband may have died or left her and all she has is an acre of, of corn or maize, as they call it there, she, she, she can't withstand a drought. But if she's got some chickens or she's got a pig or two or a goat, she can sell those and provide money for her family, school fees for her kids. So <clears throat> animals, uh, animal source protein is extremely important for the diet. But animals also are banks. They, they're, act, they're part of the culture in some countries. So we, we, what we take for, for granted, it's not the same way around the world. Yeah, I'm sure that uh, when you when you visited those areas, it, it really probably impacted you uh, personally. You know, just seeing what 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 uh, the other part of the world. Uh, we, we're very fortunate, like you said. It's Thanksgiving and, and uh, time, and uh, we have a lot to be thankful for where we live and and what we have for sure. Yeah, our, our concern this time of year is complaining about the price of a turkey. At least. You know, at least we can put turkeys on the table, maybe a ham too. Um, we one of the things that we've really pushed at Iowa State, uh, and and uh, I I think it's been fantastic is we're trying to get almost all our kids in the College of Agriculture and Life Sciences to be uh, open to traveling around the world. And our programs in Uganda or Nicaragua or wherever we go are to open kids' eyes and teach them about the world, so they'll be even if they come back and, and work with as producers in the U.S., they'll have a better appreciation for what's out there. Yeah, I think that's an awesome uh, uh, endeavor. Uh, you know, it, it, it hits us uh, when we think we put things in perspective a lot of times, you know, uh, when we see how, how things are. And uh, for sure, that, that, that has to be uh, pretty uh, impactful. Uh, and, and, and probably very important as you go forth and just, you know, uh, understanding, you know, what is our mission? What are we, what are we here to do? And, and uh, absolutely. We get caught up in sometimes in our, in our, maybe in our research or what we're trying to do, but, uh, you know, we're all here trying to feed the world and, and try to make the place a, uh, a better place for everyone. So, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, we're, uh, our time's getting short here, and we always end with uh, three questions. Okay. Uh, we'll put you on the spot, but uh, I guess first question is, what would you say is your favorite uh, resource? It could be uh, pigs or, you know. Yeah, that, that's an easy one for me. Bright kids. <laughs> they want to learn. They want to learn, and they want to uh, experience the world. And they just need a little mentoring and, and uh, a little thought-provoking education. Very good. Yeah, they, they, they do keep us young. We've, I've interacted with uh, a lot of grad students, and 
it, it's uh, it keeps you thinking, you know, a lot of times. And uh, uh, so it, it's good. It keeps us young and, and keeps us uh, hopeful for the future when we see some, some kids. Yeah. It's time for our famous three. We want to thank the innovative companies and products whose support and trust make this podcast possible. Healthy Farms by Bioverse, your manure management experts. VVC Premix from DSM Fermanish combines ultra-pure benzoic acid with nature-identical flavorings to safeguard feed and improve performance. Eastman works with you to accelerate your nutritional program innovation. Cloud Farms, swine management to the next level. MS Gold, the best hygiene products in livestock farming. Want to save up to 25% in labor time when cleaning your barns? With MS Top Foam Power, you effectively remove all historical pollution. MS Top Foam Power ensures the surface is perfectly clean and ready for disinfection. Find your dealer at www.msgold.eu. What do you think, uh, Max, uh, who, who are, I know it's hard sometimes, who do you think was your biggest uh, influence? Oh, uh, Without a doubt, it was my father. My father was a chemist. He worked in the aerospace industry on uh, some of the uh, rockets that were built uh, for protection of the U.S., the Minuteman, and then he worked on the uh, Mercury and Gemini and Apollo program. He he uh, he loved to think about new ideas, and he got me thinking about uh, basically uh, science. He was the driving force. And then my first major professor, A.B. Chapman, who was a uh, uh, my major professor at uh, uh, at University of Wisconsin, but I've had some great uh, uh, professional faculty members that have helped me along the way, and I I can't say enough about all of them. Very good. Yeah, it, it's hard to get down to one person. Uh, sometimes uh, we have so many good influences as we think back uh, to our careers and where we are. So yeah, very good. Yeah. And lastly, uh, what do you think uh, in your in your field in, as a geneticist? What are some of the, the traits that make for a, select, a successful person researcher? Uh, well, number one, they have to be inquisitive. If, if you're not inquisitive, you won't go very far. Uh, number two, you got to be willing to work with people. And you know, one of the things I've told people all along is, I'm not that bright. I've just been smart enough to hire uh, bright students. And bright and work with bright colleagues. So you got to be willing to accept other people's uh, positive qualities and not be uh, narcissistic, not be uh, 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 worried about somebody being brighter than you are. Uh, and I think inquisitive, getting there, working with the right people, and then keeping your ears open. Louis Pasteur, uh, you know, said, uh, "Luck favors the prepared mind," and that's a. a a saying that I have posted on my board in my office. It's something I always believed on. And some of the biggest things I've ever thought about came by just happen chance. The gene for litter size, I was at a cocktail party and heard somebody talking about this gene in Brazilian possums. And I said, oh, that's interesting. I never heard about that gene. It's called estrogen receptor. Well, you know, then it dawned on me, estrogen, most important female hormone. Why don't we look at that in pigs? So you got to be open to listening to people and 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 getting lucky sometimes. Yeah, very yeah, you know, that, that's uh, it, uh, it. It exemplified what you just said. Exemplified your career, it seems, and uh, and and your point. You know, it's uh, 
Uh, well, you may have, you know, stumbled on some things, but it was some hard work there that, uh, some time that, uh, and being in the right place at the right time, obviously, is, is important many times. So, yeah, you, you can't, you can't uh, tell people that it's just you thinking up ideas while you're sitting in your chair. You got to be listening to people. You got to be listening in our industry to producers and commercial people and, and work with bright people. And then if an idea seems a little off, off base, then maybe give it a try anyway. Yeah. Well, very good. You know, it, uh, it, uh, some good advice there for people that they're wanting to, to, to learn more and to, to progress in your, in any field, really. You know, you gotta, you gotta be, you gotta question and, and have a question, uh, inquisitive mind and, and, and get around, as you said, get around people, smart people. I always think, you know, I don't have to be smart. I just have to know a lot of smart people. <laughs> if you, if you know a lot of smart people, you, you know, you can find things and, uh, you're a phone call away from, from a solution many times. Absolutely. Uh, Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, very good. Uh, well, I appreciate you, uh, Dr. Rothschild. I appreciate you being on the podcast today. I'm sure, uh, listeners have gotten a lot of, uh, learned a lot and, uh, and, and there's a lot of tips that we can take here and, and apply it to any, any field. Thanks very much for asking me. It's always a pleasure to talk to people. And, and if I can be of some help in the future, People can call on me. Looking to elevate your brand and captivate audiences through the power of podcasting? Look no further. Introducing the custom podcast brought to you by Wisemetics, where we take care of the behind the scenes so that you can focus on what truly matters. Podcasting has become an invaluable tool for brand awareness, but let's face it, putting it into practice can be a daunting task. It's incredibly time-consuming and requires technical know-how. But don't worry, we've got you covered. With our experienced team at The Help, we'll handle the operational aspects so you can channel your energy into what your company does best. Are you ready to unleash the podcasting potential of your company? Schedule a call with one of our specialists today at the link in the bottom of this episode. You'll also receive a free podcast strategy consult tailored to the unique needs and goals of your business.